I want to begin today by asking you a somewhat rhetorical question. Have you ever been in a disagreement or an argument and you, you just knew that you were right and you, you decided, I am winning this thing no matter what. And you just dig your heels in and like, I'm, I'm chasing this one all the way to the end because I got this only to later find out you were, in fact, wrong. Has, anybody, has that ever happened to anybody besides your pastor? Every husband's hand in the room should be in the air right now. Well, I didn't have to wait to get married to find out about that. I got a lot better at it after I got married. But long before I was married, I remember an argument I had one day in the lunchroom in about sixth grade. I got into a disagreement with a good friend of mine by the name of Matthew Monzingo. Matthew Monzingo, who later on grew up to become a missionary, actually. Matthew and I got into a heated discussion and argument because my dad had told me about a historic NFL football game involving the Dallas Cowboys and the Green Bay Packers. I'm talking about the 1967 Ice Bowl. If you've ever seen NFL films, you've probably seen something about it. The temperature at kickoff that day on New Year's Eve in Green Bay was minus 13 degrees. That's the ambient temp that day. Wind chills that morning, that afternoon blew to minus 50 degrees. There are still players alive from that game who have no feeling in their feet. I'm not making this up. The Ice Bowl is one of the most historic games ever played. And my dad, in telling me about this game, said that it was the NFL championship game. So I began describing in the lunchroom that day on the authority of my dad, the Super Bowl that the Cowboys had beat the Packers in. Well, Matthew Monzingo immediately picked up on my error because what I had failed to account for was that in 1967, there were still two professional football leagues, the NFL and the AFL. And they each had a championship game that then sent the winner to the Super Bowl, which that year would have been Super Bowl II. Well, in the course of my conversation, I said, have you ever heard about when the Cowboys beat the Packers in the Super Bowl, in the Ice Bowl? And Matthew Monzingo goes, that wasn't the Super Bowl. I said, yes, it was. It was the NFL championship game. It was the Super Bowl. He goes, no, it wasn't. The Packers and the Cowboys were in the same league. They couldn't have played in the Super Bowl against each other. And I was like, I own Matthew Monzingo right now. I am winning this argument. It was the NFL championship. It had to be the Super Bowl. I know I'm right. See, Matthew had picked up on that little nuance. My dad hadn't misinformed me, but rather I had misunderstood. I had misconstrued what he had told me. You know, a very, very similar scenario is playing out when Jesus is telling one of the most famous parables he ever told, the parable of the prodigal son. The parable of the prodigal son, Jesus is laying out the principles and the motives behind his mission as the son of God coming to the world, but he's doing it in a very particular fashion for a very particular audience. The parable of the prodigal son is something that most of us can connect with on one level or another at any given moment in our lives. Now, just to recap where we kicked off last week, the story that Jesus told is about a man who had two sons, the younger of whom came to the father and said, I want my share of my inheritance now. Before you're dead, I want what's coming to me 
Now, the father acquiesced. He gave him his share of the inheritance, and the younger son left home and went to a distant land, and there he blew it all in wild living, partying like a rock star. The older brother, however, stayed home, the rule keeper, the good son. And it was for the older brothers in Jesus' audience that he actually told this story. You see, we look at the prodigal son and we think, man, the prodigal son, I, I understand what that means. I, I can identify at least at some level with the prodigal son. We all know what it's like to, to stray from home. And remember last week we said that home is essentially wherever you belong and become everything that God has created you to be. Everything that God says is true about you as you grow up into that, that's where you become who he created you to be. It's where you belong. That is home. And I think most of us, when we're honest, when, when we're genuinely authentic with ourselves and other people, we can say, you know what? The younger brother, I can connect with that. I, I know for a fact, there have been times, maybe there have been seasons where I have strayed from home and I've, I've wandered off of the straight and narrow but if you know the story at all about the older brother, it was the older brother who stayed home. He can be a little bit harder to connect with. He can be harder because it's easy, I think, to look at the older brother and, and see somebody who has a really critical spirit, a, a very judgmental spirit and go, ooh, man, I, that is no good. But you know what? something I've noticed about just in my life? I'm not talking about you necessarily, but I've just noticed in my life Whenever I notice somebody who's being judgmental, almost reflexively, I become very judgmental about somebody who's judgmental. Did you ever do that? You ever kind of go, they are so judgmental. I'm like, rut row. I believe I have just become the older brother. And it's something that is just part of the human condition. The older brother was nothing new in Jesus's day go all the way back to the beginning. Ever since people have populated the planet, you have Cain and Abel. You've got older brother-itis. You've got Hagar and Sarah, Jacob and Esau, Saul and David. Even in Jesus' own disciples, there was this constant competition and jealousy and jockeying for position and status. Older brother-itis was nothing new. And the fact of the matter is, even 2,000 years later, we all understand older brother types. We, we've seen this before. It, it's almost as if Jesus knows when he's telling the story, this is going to be a constant tension in people's lives. Look, look at how he continues the narrative. In Luke chapter 15, I'm going to start in verse 25. Luke 15, we're going to read to verse 27 just quickly. It says, meanwhile, the older son was in the fields working. When he returned home, he heard music and dancing in the house, and he asked one of the servants what was going on. Your brother is back, he was told, and your father has killed the fattened calf. We are celebrating because of his safe return. Now, before we get too judgmental about the judgmental older brother, just for a brief second, put yourself in his sandals. Doesn't it make sense? You've been the one keeping the rules. You were the one who stayed home when the other younger brother left home. And keep in mind, by the father bringing him back into the family, by bringing him back into, he was now diminishing the estate again. So 
there was a lot going on, a lot of dynamics at play in this moment. You, you, it's not hard to imagine why the older brother would be like, oh, I don't think so. We, we're not killed. And by the way, to kill the fattened calf in this day and age, that was a luxury. That, that was, you, you didn't eat meat with most meals. And if you did, you certainly didn't eat beef. That, that was such a luxury. We, 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 of course, now know that beef is God's favorite food. But at the time, it was not necessarily considered that way. And here the father has killed the fatted calf. There's a party going on. There's music happening. People are dancing. And the older brother continues. Jesus' narrative goes on and it says the older brother was angry and he wouldn't go in. His father came out and begged him, but he replied, all these years I've slaved for you and never once refused to do a single thing you told me to. And in all that time, you never gave me even one young goat for a feast with my friends. Yet when this son of yours comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes, you celebrate by killing the fattened calf. Can we just take a minute? Isn't it fascinating that the older brother sees the need to give the father some details of where the younger brother has been? We don't know anything about the prostitutes until the older brother starts talking. Nothing like brotherly love, is there? But Jesus is up to something here. Jesus is, Jesus is proposing something so completely counterintuitive, so religiously radical with this parable. Jesus is saying in the parable of the prodigal son, not only is it possible to be lost in our defiance, the younger brother, He's saying it is actually possible to also be just as lost in compliance, the older brother. To be compliant, to be the rule follower, doesn't necessarily mean that you have the heart of the father. You see, this older brother failed to understand all of the blessings that were his for the taking as long as he was home. He was so busy being the older brother being the one who was doing the right thing, the golden child, if you will. And we understand that. We understand that, that mindset, that heart set that, that can lead to what I would call older brother-itis, that, that older brother-itis. Now, I have to be careful here because I'm the eldest of three boys, so I understand, but it's not just for that. And as we go through this I want to remind you of something that we said last week when we started this series, that all of us at one point or another can identify with the younger brother, the, the brother who left home. Sometimes we can all identify with the older brother who stayed home. And then there are even times when we can identify with the father who, who made home. And, and Jesus has given us this, this continuum to help us understand who he is and what he wants to be, who he wants to be in our lives. But this older brother Idas is a very, very real thing. A few years ago, my bride, Julie, woke up one morning and she came into, you know, we have coffee together every morning of the world. And she said, my, my hip hurts. I'm like, that's not good. And she goes, hey, I mean, I don't know what I did. It feels like I've got a bruise. It's like, okay. Well, as the morning progressed, she, she 
He said, it, it feels like it's getting worse. I don't understand what's going on here. And I, I was, you know, concerned, husband, servant heart. And I don't know why you're laughing at that, but I was. And, and as the afternoon started to progress, the pain got worse and worse and worse. And finally, I said, enough. We're going to go to the ER and get this looked at. We're, we're not going to wonder about this anymore. Now, two things you need to understand about my bride. Number one, she is a beautiful, godly woman with the pain tolerance of a rhinoceros. If Julie says, ouch, that kind of hurts, I would be in the hospital. She has this incredible pain threshold. I, I have a theory that that's kind of women in general over and against men in general, but that's a whole other sermon. My point is, Julie can take a lot of pain before you ever hear about it. Number two, Julie hates going to the doctor. Hates it, not because she loves doctors, but she hates anything that could be perceived as dramatic or, or over-dramatic, melodramatic. She is the least dramatic person I know. Now, she is highly animated, but she is not dramatic. So when she agreed to go to the ER, I knew she was in some serious pain. So we go to the ER, we get checked in, and the nurse is asking her some questions, and he starts to ask some questions about how bad is the pain, what is it like on a scale of 1 to 10, when did it start, how's it gotten, blah, 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 and all the way through. And finally, he goes, okay, I think I've got an idea of what's going on. We're going to get you a scan, but it sounds like you have diverticulitis. I said, diver who's it? He said, diverticulitis. And he explained that most people develop in their intestine, usually in their lower intestine, these, these little, little sacs or pouches called diverticula. And they're no big deal. They kind of just sit there and do their job and, and hang out, no problem. But from time to time, food can sometimes get caught in there. And when that happens, it can become inflamed or maybe even infected to the point that you have to have surgery. But that inflammation, that infection is what's diverticulitis. Older brother-itis is an inflammation of our self-righteousness, an inflammation of our self-esteem beyond what is appropriate. It is an inflammation of self-righteousness that can lead to an infection in our relationship with God and in our relationship with each other. This older brother-itis is something that every single one of us is capable of. If I can't just show you a couple of just some symptoms to keep in mind, just to be aware of as we go day to day. Symptoms of older brotheritis. Number one, scorekeeping. Scorekeeping. If you're an older brother, you're keeping score, man. That's what he was doing the whole time he was at home, following all the rules, doing all the right things, but he was keeping score. He was making sure that he had a little spiritual relational tally sheet, score sheet in his mind that younger brother's off in the distant land doing who knows what. He was keeping tabs on him. Notice what he said to the father? But he was keeping score. Whenever we keep score spiritually or relationally, what's going on there beneath the surface is we are attempting to earn our way into God's good graces, forgetting that God's grace is already good. It's already a free gift. You can't earn it. You can't do enough good things. People, well, I think I'll go to heaven because I'm a good person. No, you're not. You're not good enough. I'm not good enough. No human being except Jesus himself has ever been good enough to earn 
their way, to score enough moral points to get to heaven. That's not how it works. Scorekeeping. Number two, coming out of scorekeeping is legalism. Legalism. You know those, those people who like to keep the rules for the rules' sake, and they make sure that you know, that they know, that you know you're keeping the rules. This is that judgmental spirit. Legalism is the principle. Judgmentalism is the practice. But it's the same thing. It's that, it's that legalism. The older brother was doing all of the right things, but he was doing all of the right things because of what he thought he would get from them. Legalism. Number three, us versus themism. Us versus themism. You could call this tribalism. We're right, they're wrong. Us versus themism. We're under attack. We have to attack back. I don't, I kind of don't think that's the point of the story here. That, that tribalism, us against them. You could also call it cable newsism, tribalism. Number four, pride. Pride. As I was working on this sermon, I was thinking, you know, the older brother had a superiority complex. He felt superior to the younger brother. And then I realized that was just good old-fashioned pride. That's just good old, just, just good old-fashioned, you know what? I am the man. I, <laughs> I'm not bragging. I'm just telling you. I've got it going on. I'm awesome. Now, you, you can laugh at that, and I can go on a Sunday morning, who, whoever. Anybody here ever deal with pride? Hands going up all over the room. It's a very real thing, pride. Number five, entitlement. Entitlement. Now, entitlement is particularly slippery because it can slither into our lives in ways that we don't even realize. If you had asked the older brother, do you feel entitled to a party with a young goat? He would, no, no, I'm just, I'm just here doing the right thing. I don't feel entitled. But look at the tone he took with his father. You, you see in there an underlying current of entitlement. I deserve better. You're killing the fattened calf for him. You've never even given me a young goat. Now, before you throw rocks at a young goat, how many of you have ever had cabrito? Don't sleep on cabrito. That's a great meal. But it ain't the fatted calf. And the older brother is here saying, I deserve at least a young goat, if not the fattened calf. I've never left home. I've never squandered your estate on prostitutes like him. I'm entitled to something more, something better. You know what? Entitlement is one of those things, too, that can sneak in there. Particularly if you've been following Christ for a long time and you face a crisis, a challenge, a health scare, a loss, sorrow, grief. It is, it is a reflex of the human nature to say, God, why me? I, God, I, I've served you faithfully. I, I pray regularly. I, God, I even tithed. Why is this happening to me? God has never promised us a single entitlement. If anything, Jesus promised us problems. 
Remember, he said, in this world, you will have many problems, but take heart, be courageous, for I, he said, have overcome the world. So entitlement is another symptom of older brother-itis. Number six is a stale prayer life, a stale prayer life. If you just kind of go through the motions, God is great, God is good, let us thank him for our food, amen. That's, that's a sign of very real older brother-itis. There's, there's not a, a vulnerability. There's not a consistency. There's not a, a life to those prayers. Then that, that's an indication of something going on. We'll, we'll talk about what to do about it in just a second, but just know that's part of it. The last one, detached worship. Detached worship is a monster, monster symptom of older brother-itis. By detached worship, I mean just kind of going through the motions. And, and I don't mean, listen, if you don't have rhythm, I don't have, that doesn't mean you're not worshiping. But it means that you're not worshiping in spirit and in truth. It, it means that you're just kind of going through the motions. That's why I love that this is, we're talking about this today. Whoo, man, earlier, how great thou art. Are you kidding me? Man, if, if that didn't put a quiver in your liver spiritually, if you were just kind of like, oh, Lord, my God, consider all the world I have made. Didn't Elvis did this song, didn't he? I think Elvis sang this one. That's detached worship. But when you go, oh, Lord, my God, when I in awesome wonder consider all the worlds thy hands have made, I see the stars, I hear the rolling thunder, thy works throughout the universe displayed. Then sings my soul, how great thou art. Man, I, I was down here. Roger's up here singing. Derek, Emily, all of them on tune. I, I mean, I, I was going for it, Jack. I missed a lot of it. But you know, listen, when you're not in detached worship mode, you let it fly. You're like, I'm, I'm, I'm going to let it, I don't, I'm going to hit it. I'm going for it. The Bible never says make a beautiful noise to the Lord. It says make a joyful noise. Worship. Oh, Lord, my God, when I in awesome wonder. If it's just going through the motions, there, there may be some older brother-itis sneaking in the back door. So what's the cure? Those are the symptoms. How do you... How do you cure older brother eyes? How do you address it? It's very, very simple, but not easy. In, in three words, grow in grace. Grow in grace. That's how you arrest older brother eyes. That's how you slow it down and back it off. To grow in grace is the antibiotic for older brother eyes. That, that's, that's how you get rid of it. 
In the book of 2 Peter, chapter 3, Peter is wrapping up this letter that he has written to the churches scattered throughout Asia Minor, what is currently modern-day Turkey, more or less. And in this letter, he's been explaining to them that as followers of Christ, we are to adopt an eternal perspective. We're to keep in mind we're scattered now, we're persecuted, all of these things are going on, but never forget the fact that Jesus will return. There is more to this life than this life. And he says in 2 Peter 3 that with this eternal perspective, we're to look at other people the way he looks at other people. It's in 2 Peter 3 that he says that God is slow and patient, not wanting anyone to perish, but wanting all to come to repentance. That's the heart of God. But then he says something so profound. With this eternal perspective in mind, he says in 2 Peter 3, 18, rather you must grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. All glory to him, both now and forever, amen. You must grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus. You grow in that grace. And when we say grow in grace, don't, don't think for a second that that just means you become nicer. You're, you're, just, you're just a nice guy. You're a nice girl. No, 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 no. Grace is much tougher, much more profound than just being nice. To, to grow in the grace of God, I wanna, I wanna give you three things. I wanna challenge you to do these three things every day this week, to grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus. Number one, celebrate the holiness of God. Celebrate the holiness of God. It's interesting, he says that you have to grow in the grace of knowledge and now to him be all glory and honor. Worship God. The holiness of God means the otherness, the set-apartness, that God is transcendent. He's different than you and I. God is not my homeboy. He ain't a Jewish carpenter. He, he's not my co-pilot. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is transcendent. We celebrate that holiness. So that holiness, that moral perfection, flawlessness, and we, we celebrate that. So when I say celebrate, I mean write down in your prayer journal, assuming you have a prayer journal, write down what is it about God that you celebrate? What is it about his personality, his character that you honor, that you respect, that you revere? Because he is God and we are not. Celebrate the holiness of God. Sometimes Julie will say to me out of nowhere, tell me three things that you love about me and they can't be the last three that you said. And so I just start talking because you do not want to hesitate when that comes up. But I got to tell you something. After 30 years of being married to her, I don't have to hesitate. I, I got a list as long as your arm of things I love about this woman, the things I've seen her do, the things I've seen her not do, the way she works, the way she prays, the way she loves people, the way she mothers, the way she wifes. 
all of the above, the way she enjoys life, the way she celebrates. I, I, can, I can go on. Sometimes I go to like four, five, or six just to show off. But I'm not showing off me. I'm showing off her. There's a lot of things to love about Julie Richard. How many more things are there to celebrate about God, to lift him up, to worship him? You celebrate the holiness of God. Number two, meditate on the grace of God. Meditate on the grace of God. May I just tell you that meditation is one of the most powerful tools at our disposal spiritually. It is mission critical to growing in the grace of God. It's mission critical, but it's also greatly misunderstood. When I say to, to meditate, I'm not talking about some kind of woo-woo out in the ether, let the universe hear the energy. No. To meditate means to, to focus and think intentionally and purposefully. That's what it means to meditate. So what if you were to take three minutes every day this week, no phone, no screens, no conversation, just you and God quietly, still meditating on the grace of God, thinking intentionally and purposefully about grace. Here's what the Bible says about grace in Romans 5. As sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord, Romans 5, 21. When you understand that the grace of God, the amazing grace took you from death in sin, because that, that's the reality. We, we are dead in sin, period, hard stop. But God, in his grace, brings us to life, life eternal, life in the moment, the life that is truly life in Christ. And you stop and you meditate on that, you consider that, you ponder that, whew, I'm just telling you, grace changes everything. Grace changes the way you see people. Grace changes the way you see your profession. Grace changes the way you see your possessions. Grace changes the way you see pleasure. Grace changes the way you see everything. You see, the older brother had forgotten about the blessings of being the son of the father. He was so wrapped up in the rules that he forgot. He forgot. Celebrate the holiness of God. Meditate on the grace of God. And then number three, imitate Jesus. Just imitate Jesus. Well, who did Jesus forgive? Woman caught in the act of adultery, yeah, yeah, he did. Um, the woman at the well had been married five times, was living with somebody she wasn't even married to, he forgave her. Imitate Jesus, the grace of Jesus. His, his own disciples, when they started jockeying for position and status and amongst the 12, and remember James and John's mother came to Jesus, how embarrassing, their mother tweeted Jesus, who's gonna sit at your right side in heaven? I mean, this, is, this has been going on since time immemorial. Jesus forgave them. 
But in Luke chapter 23, the Bible says this. When they came to a place called the Skull, Golgotha, Calvary, they nailed him to the cross. And the criminals were also crucified, one on his right and one on his left. And then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they are doing. And then the soldiers gambled for his clothes by throwing dice. Jesus didn't just forgive people who wronged him, people who said ugly things about him, people who said things that were not true. (laughs) He literally showed grace to the people who were in the process of killing him. That's the standard, folks. That's the standard. And when we commit ourselves to imitating him, to following him truly, then we are truly growing in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus. Just after the Vietnam War, a missionary felt called to Vietnam. God stirred something in his heart and in his life, and he had a deep, abiding passion and compassion for the people of Vietnam who had been so scarred by years and years of war. He went to Vietnam, got an apartment, began working amongst the people, and set up a church for the people of Vietnam. And in this town, the people were resistant. They were not responding in droves. And, and it, was, it was hard work. It was grinding work. And finally, one night, the missionary came home, and, and he found that his apartment had been robbed. All of his possessions, everything he owned except the sofa in the living room. And this was the final straw. He walked in, and he just sat down, and, and he just lost it. He said, I, I can't do this anymore. I'm done. Have you ever felt like you were done? Like just no moss. And, and he cried out to God and he said, God, I, I want to go home. I, I came here because I love these people. I don't love them anymore. They're not responding. They're not, they're not doing what I thought they would do. I don't love the people of Vietnam anymore. And he said that, After a while, he kind of calmed down. The tears were still flowing, but he wasn't loud anymore. And as he sat there crying on the only thing he owned in the whole world, he just felt God quicken something in his mind and in his heart. And he he just sensed God saying to him, you're not here because you love the people of Vietnam. You're here because I love the people of Vietnam. Grace changes everything. 
That's what Jesus was communicating to the older brothers. That's what Jesus is communicating to me when I can be the older brother. Grace changes everything. Because it's a gift that you can't earn. I want to ask you to bow your heads for just a moment. And in this moment, I just want to, I want to put before you a, a question. It's a very straightforward yes or no question. Have you responded to the grace of God? Have you chosen to confess your sin to him, to claim his forgiveness, and commit your life to following Christ? That's what we saw in baptism here earlier today, both of our services. People who came to an understanding of grace and said, I need it. If that's you in this place or maybe online, then I want to just invite you to pray. Just right where you are, from your heart to God's, silently say something like this. Just say, Jesus, I need you. I confess my sin to you in order to claim and accept your grace and forgiveness. I believe that you died on the cross and I choose to believe that you rose from the dead for me. And in this moment, I accept that gift. In exchange for your life, to me, I will give my life to you. I will follow you, Jesus, from this moment forward. I pray this prayer in your name. If you would just remain with your heads bowed for another moment. But it's a sacred moment when God's moving in people's lives. And if that was your moment, if that was your prayer, then, man, we're so excited for you. I mean it. As a church, it's our, it's our privilege to walk alongside with you, to learn from you, to, to be a family with you. If you would just do a couple of things to kind of help that process begin, let us know that you made that commitment. You can use the QR code that's in the seat back in front of you. Or if you want to, you can take that card out and go old school and fill it out with an actual pen and hand it to somebody that's out at the hub underneath the big front door as you go out. If you're online, there's a place for you also. But we would just love to know that God did that. We wanna, as I said, help. The second thing, as our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed for just a moment, would you raise your hand? If that was your prayer and you meant it with everything that you have, just raise your hand and hold it up in the air. Your hand just being a statement physically of the commitment spiritually that you just made to follow Christ. And know that as a church and as a family of faith with you, we celebrate that. 
And our family tradition around here is that you can put your hands down, but we're going to put our hands together and tell you, welcome home. Welcome home.